Good morning. Happy New Year again. Um, we didn't set out to do a New Year's sermon. Um, Jeremiah asked me last minute to, to prepare something. He was planning to be away. Um, so uh, we're going to end up with a bit of a New Year's sermon because uh, we are going to look ahead uh, this year. Uh, you'll notice he's here. He, he came back after reading my notes, uh, so I'll let you draw your own conclusions on what that means. Um, we're going to spend some time this morning um, looking at the church uh, and some ramifications of being the church. Um, your elders have been working through uh, several kind of related topics uh, for the last few months, and in earnest, uh, we've been thinking and, and talking and praying about them and studying for, for a long time on these these things, um, but the last few months we've been really digging into it, and uh Today is going to be the first day that we start to, to kind of talk about that in detail. Uh, it's not going to be finished today. We're going to be kind of laying this out and going into more detail over the next few months, at least, as we uh, work through these things. So uh, the three things we've kind of been working through is a church confession. Uh, on our website, you'll see we've, we've got kind of the Reforming Catholic Confession up there as, as kind of the, the main confession of the church. Um, and that's a really good confession, um, but it is a, a broader confession. And we're looking at a more detailed confession. Um, in particular, we're looking at the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 uh, to make that our church confession. We've also been uh, discussing and meeting and talking about joining the Grace Reformed Network, uh, which is starting soon. So uh, some of you follow uh, Theocast and uh, have listened to those guys, and they're starting uh, a network of churches and association that we've uh, been kind of uh, involved in some of the meetings and uh, praying about that. And then also talking about implementing church membership, a more formal church membership. Um, We've been slowly headed towards each of these for quite a while, uh, the 1689 for more than a year for sure. We've been talking about that and working through it and studying it. Um, membership for probably even longer than that, we've had conversations on, on that. We, uh, we come from a background, if you have been here a while, uh, with Calvary Chapel that is very... Um, kind of antagonistic to church membership, to formal church membership. There's some historical reasons why we may get into a few of those today. Um, but we've been working through, you know, those those reasons why there's been an antagonism towards church membership and, and also what its benefits could be uh, and why churches have historically used it and implemented it. Um, and then the possibility of joining um, the Grace Reform Network. That came up um, earlier in, in 2022. Uh, they've been working towards uh, setting that up and implementing that. And that kind of brought uh, these other considerations to a head. Like we've been toying with them and talking about them for a long time, um, but their requirements for joining the GRN. So you have to be uh, a church that has adopted the 1689 uh, if you want to join, and you also have to have formal church membership if you want to join. So as we had talked about GRN and, and explored that, uh, we took the time to, to, to finally say, it, it's time to make decisions. It's time to, to stop just talking about it and, and really dig into it and figure out what we're going to do. So we've been doing that for the last uh, few months. Uh, we're continuing to do that. It's, it's a big process. It's a lot of work. Um, and, uh, but we're going to start this week detailing some of the kind of scriptural foundations for why we think these are important moves. Um, this, is a, this is a broad introduction today. Uh, we're going to be going into a lot more detail on these things, not necessarily just Sunday mornings, but as we kind of figure out how this process will, will move forward. They'll, there may be additional meetings, there may be other content we put together, but we're going to go into a lot more depth on all of these topics than we're going to cover this morning, which we're going to cover at like the highest levels today. Um, some of these things may be new. Um, they were new for us as we worked through this. They were things we were unfamiliar with or things that we were familiar with, but had a negative view of just from 
kind of the culture we came from. So uh, you may have questions. Uh, we certainly did. We've spent a lot of time reading uh, about them, uh, exploring them, asking our own questions, getting answers to those questions. Uh, so feel free uh, at any time to reach out to one of us, to Troy, to Jeremiah, to me, uh, and ask. Um, but know that we are definitely going to be continuing this conversation. We're going to be digging into all of these things in a lot more detail uh, over the next months. And so this morning, we're going to start by looking at the church, uh, what the church is, especially uh, the local church, and uh, some important uh, features that the local church has. Um, so in that light, we're going to start with the confession. Um, the confession has just a beautiful summary of the doctrine of the church, and uh, we'll get into some of the scripture here in a minute, but I want to start with uh, a portion of what the 1689 Confession says about the church. So, the Catholic or universal church, which, with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it are and may be called visible saints. And of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. In the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he prescribes to them in his word. Those thus called he commands to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requires of them in the world. The members of these churches are saints by calling visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. That's beautiful. There's a ton packed in there, and that's not even the entire section on the church. There's still a lot more in there that we'll, we'll cover at a later time. Uh, but some things I want to highlight as we think about what the church is. The church uh, can be broken down and thought of in two different ways. Uh, the first uh, is the universal church, the Catholic church. The whole number of the elect throughout history. All people that have been, are now, or will be united to Christ. That's the invisible church, those that have been given to the Father. We call it invisible because we can't see all of that. We, we don't know every person that has believed. Uh, even now, even those among us that are alive, we, we can't tell for sure. Uh, we can see evidences of faith. We can see um, obedience to uh, to the commands of Christ, uh, but we can't see the heart. So we don't know every person that is a part of the universal church. So we call it invisible. God knows. We don't. Um, the other way we can look at it is through the local church, the visible church. All persons professing the faith of the gospel and on obedience unto God by Christ. So we can see people who, um, who profess to believe. We can see people who uh, show obedience unto God. Uh, those people are organized into particular congregations. So we have, in America especially, we have hundreds of churches, thousands of churches. Even in every city, there's, there's many, and we can see um, people grouped into those congregations, and so that's visible. Their local church, the, the visible church, is called to walk together for the mutual, mutual edification 
and the performance of public worship. So we gather, we gather here to, uh, to build each other up. We gather here to be equipped. We gather here to, to worship God together. This is the public performance of uh, the worship. Uh, the local church gives them, themselves to the Lord and to one another in subjection to the ordinances of the, of the gospel. One thing to know about the visible church, because we can see each congregation, we can see the people that are there, is that even though that's the visible church, it doesn't always line up one-to-one -one with the invisible church. You'll find people in particular congregations who are not part of the invisible church. They may profess a faith or they may show some signs of obedience, but their heart doesn't belong to the Lord. Uh, there are also maybe people who, uh, who are part of the church, uh, who do believe, but aren't in a particular church at the time. And so they're not visible because they're on their own. That's not God's plan. Um, and so the visible church can be seen, but it isn't one-to-one -one with the invisible church. The commands for the church in Scripture apply to the invisible church. So when the church is called to do something, uh, that's a call for the entire church to do, do, do that. But even more so, that's a call for the visible church to do it. Because the visible church is the church you can see, it's the church you can know, it's the church you can talk to and interact with, to live with. The local church gives us a focal point for the commands of Christ in regard to the church. The bulk of church history, the people knew little about the church beyond their own local church. Travel was much more difficult throughout most of history. Their local church was probably all they knew of the body of Christ. Uh, we're blessed to live in an age where we can see uh, more people, where we have broader reach, can easily travel. Uh, technology makes it easy to see congregations from all over the world, um, even, even small ones. And last week when uh, we stream, we had people from Uganda watching. Um, so it, the world seems smaller now. That's not typical. Um, and so the lo local churches is vital as the kind of the the interactions we have especially the commands that relate to our interactions with one another that happens in the local church ordinarily we're going to look at the church's purpose uh, knowing who the church is we're going to we're going to talk about its purpose and we're going to start there with the great commission uh, Matthew 28:18 through 20 says and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is one of the, the primary purposes for the, the whole church, to go and make disciples, to baptize those disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're to proclaim the gospel. Uh, we do that here every week. We're to do that in, in our own lives as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the first priority of the church is to proclaim the gospel, make disciples. Secondly, to baptize those disciples. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
So we're to baptize. And I would say that uh, as we think about the purpose of the church and the calling of the church, especially as it comes to baptizing, that we would uh, think about that also in terms of administering the both ordinances, both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're called to, to do the things that Christ commanded us to do, and baptizing uh, members into the church and, and administering the Lord's Supper, participating in that, is the command of Christ. And finally, uh, teaching them to do all that Christ commanded them. In Romans 12, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians, Paul says, In him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In order to do all the commands of Christ, we have to know those commands. We have to know what is required of us. Uh, we have to know um, the gospel. We have to know who Christ is and what he's done and what his expectations are for the church. Paul says in his writing to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The, the church is uh, a pillar of the truth. We're, again, as we go and make disciples, as we baptize people, we need to know Christ. We need to uh, exhibit Christ. We need to be ambassadors of him. And so... Uh, we should know how we ought to behave, and we should um, be teaching each other uh, those things. That's, that's a primary purpose of the church as well. The church has other purposes. Uh, just in, in passing, we'll get into these uh, at other times. Um, we read about them in the, the confession, the edification of the saints uh, to build each other up, uh, and that could be grouped in with, with teaching um, Bearing one another's burdens, um, and the public worship of the Lord, which we're doing. Those things are all things that the church needs to do as the body of Christ. So what does the church need in order to accomplish this purpose? And, and this is where we're going to get into, um, in particular, um, the things that I want to talk about this morning. Um, we need to know who the church is and what the church should teach. Uh, if we're going to make disciples, we need to know who's not a disciple. Uh, if we're going to baptize people into the church in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we need to know who those people are who need baptized. If we're going to teach the church what Christ commanded so that we can do it, we need to know what Christ commanded. Um, historically, Protestant churches have satisfied these needs with church membership, and with a confession of faith. Uh, and I would say all churches have both of these. All churches have church membership and a confession of faith, even if they're not explicit. Um, you'll find, and, and probably most of us are familiar with um, kind of broad evangelical non-denominational churches. Um, there are some who may be familiar with, with more reformed churches who, who do practice these in a little more formal manner, um, but the bulk of churches in the United States in particular, uh, these things are implicit, not explicit. That doesn't mean they don't exist for those churches. That doesn't mean they don't have them. They're just not spelled out. Uh, with membership, the way that plays out, if you don't have formal church membership, is uh, it can be whoever shows up then on a, on a regular basis as a member, or what is probably happening is the pastor or elders at that church are uh, keeping a list of who they think are members. Um, one of the, the problems with that is, is there's no commitment involved. There's no commitment involved from the people, uh, no commitment, a lack of commitment involved from the church as well. Uh, and it can lead to hurt um, with people disappearing who've been there for a long time. That happens. We've had that happen in the past. Uh, it's, not, it's not fun. Um, membership can help guard against those things. 
and it goes the other direction too. Uh, the church as an organization commits to its members. Uh, and so it can be hard when you have people who, who aren't members who are in need. The church may not know about that and so may not meet a need that's there because it's unknown. Membership can help with knowing those needs, knowing who the people are, and therefore meeting those needs. With a confession um, in modern evangelical churches, what you'll often see is a statement of faith. Um, that's a confession, um, but at modern churches, um, that tends to be a much less specific statement. Um, that statement is generally more creedal rather than uh, confessional, so it's, it's much more broad than a, the historic confessions were. And what can happen with that is uh, twofold. One, um, how many of you know we have a statement of faith? We do. It's in our bylaws. Um, probably only a handful of people here have ever read it. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, <laughs> the church's stance on things should be known uh, to those who attend there. Uh, we should be we should recognize what, what we believe. Um, and so, yeah, they tend to be unknown. They're in, they're in a, a document somewhere, uh, maybe on a website, and it doesn't go much farther than that at a lot of churches. Uh, but the broad nature of it can also lead to conflict um, because it doesn't give you any guidance on, on when you get into the more tricky theological matters, and, and there are some. There are differences of opinion on interpretation, and when those differences and, and when there aren't stances made on specific things, you, you can come into situations where those differences of opinion uh, bubble up into conflict and, and often into division. Um, and so, uh, again... Well done membership and, a, and a, a more specific confession can help guard against those things. There are a lot of misconceptions about membership and confession. There are historical reasons why uh, churches have, uh, especially in the U.S., have abandoned church membership, formal church membership, and, and why they have abandoned uh, the confessions. We're not going to get into to all of that today. That's a, a broad and long topic, um, but we're going to just because this is things that may bring up uh, things you've heard or, or things you've dealt with in the past, uh, just to briefly mention some of the misconceptions that there are about membership and confessions. Uh, and they're kind of broke down into two broad categories. Um, the first is you may be opposed or may have kind of antagonistic feelings towards these things because of past abuses by churches. Um, like anything in life, uh, membership and confessions can be misused, uh, and they have been. Um, membership can become all about numbers, with people being added even though they're not actually behaving as members, where they're not, um, not attending or not following through with responsibilities, um, the membership becomes meaningless in that case. I mean, we, there are example after example of, of churches throughout the U.S. who have these really long membership roles and, you know, a fraction of those people attend on a regular basis. That's not helping anybody. That membership is not useful, uh, and, and we don't want anything like that to, to go on here. Uh, membership is just, it's just meaningless then. It's not telling you anything. It's not helping you in any way if it's just a list of people who aren't actually there. Uh, the confessions could be elevated above scripture, used to discourage study instead of encouraging it. Um, the confession should encourage us to dig into the word. It should guide us through our study, not keep us from studying and again, there have been examples where, where that's happened in the past, where churches have focused so much on the confession that, that they don't allow any, any questioning at all. And, and we're not interested in that. Uh, we've all been on a really long journey toward, uh, toward this confession. It's been, a, 
it's been a lot of work for those of us who've, who've walked that path going from, you know, a, a, a broader evangelical background to the, a reformed understanding. And so uh, we recognize that that takes time, it takes study, it takes effort, um, and we would encourage you to do that, and encourage you to ask questions, encourage you to, to use the confession uh, to enhance your study of the scriptures, not detract from it. Uh, the other kind of misconceptions and, and things about membership and confession uh, come because we naturally rebel against authority. Formal membership requires commitment, requires submission, and includes responsibilities. And those are hard things sometimes. And we don't like to be constrained in any way. We want to do what we want to do. Uh, and so we naturally um, don't want that. And, and a confession requires the same. It requires some submission. It requires humility. Um, one of the great things about the confession is that um, and this is not specific to the 1689, but to Westminster, Savoy, there are others. These are old documents. They've been around hundreds of years. They have been looked at by thousands of theologians. Um, and those three in particular are, are nearly identical in probably 90% of their content. There's a 10% difference in their text where they, they do have differences. Um, but they share the bulk of their language word for word. Um, and so they have been tested and checked against Scripture for hundreds of years. Um, and so uh, know that that's a help to you because it's not on you to figure it out from the ground up. You can stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before those people also were filled with the Holy Spirit as they studied the scriptures, as they uh, wrote those confessions, as they studied the confessions and, and compared them to scripture over and over again. Um, that doesn't make them infallible. That doesn't make the confessions perfect. That doesn't mean that they're, they can't be changed. Confessions can be changed if, uh, if there's warrant. Um, but I would, I would say, you know, if after hundreds of years, there's still broad consensus that these are accurate summaries of what the scriptures teach, that that needs to be done with care and slowness and with humility. So thinking, setting aside, you know, kind of the, the potential problems that you can run into with membership or with content confessions, with the things that um, maybe we've been taught uh, that they're that they're not good or that they're going to cause uh, a deadness. I mean, that's that's the usual one that you'll end up with a dead Christianity that's not vibrant. Um, I disagree. Um, I think there's plenty of churches uh, in throughout history that have implemented these that are vibrant um, and great examples of, um, of the body of Christ. Um, but that's the typical thing that I've heard, at least in, in my past, that these things will lead to a deadness. Um, leaving that aside, let's look at, at why these things are important, how they benefit the church. Um, and so with membership, one of the important things when we go looking at how to accomplish the church's purpose, we need to know who the church is. And this is going back to the, the visible church, uh, knowing who that is so that we uh, can work together to fulfill the purpose of the church. Um, as I go through the rest of this, I'm going to be reading some. One of the things that, as we move forward, I mentioned the, the statement of faith in the bylaws in order to implement some of these things, we're working through a new set of bylaws. And so some of these uh, quotes come from that. And we compiled um, kind of our first draft of that from um, a number of other churches. And so this language, uh, most of them had very similar, if not identical language in a lot of places. And the language goes back hundreds of years. Um, 
I think the oldest ones that, that I looked at were like the, the 17th century, uh, so the 1600s. Uh, some of that, this language goes back that far. Uh, Jeremiah posted this uh, not long ago. This is a beautiful statement about, uh, about membership. A genuine Christian's commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is inseparable from his commitment to his truth and his people. This commitment ordinarily requires a formal, open, voluntary, solemn, and enduring commitment to membership in a local church. That's just a great statement. We are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we're committed to his people. Some of the scriptural basis for um, membership, we're going to kind of walk through a little bit of it. The first one is uh, we're going to walk through some scriptures that show that the church can be counted. We, we know its number. Um, the visible church can be counted. Uh, more people are added to it. Um, and sometimes people are removed from it. From Acts 2, those who received this word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts 4, but many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On, uh, so in Acts, you'll, you'll see that throughout Acts, that there were uh, people being added to the church, people being saved, people being believing, and, and the number um, stated there. Uh, they knew who was being added to the church. They knew how many, who those people were. In uh, some cases, people are removed from the church. In Matthew 18, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's an unfortunate situation, one that you hope never to have to deal with. Um, but it is a reality sometimes. Um, and so the, ch the number of the church is known there as well. The church also has defined leaders and representatives. It's an organization. Those leaders are chosen from among the church. Not, not from among the universal church. They're chosen from among the local church. And they're chosen at the consent of the local church. It's organized and it's orderly. And we'll see how that uh, applies to membership. It, if you're looking to choose from among you, you need to know who you are. From Acts 6, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because of their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Uh, so there's structure to the church. Um, there's leadership, there's those who serve. Acts 15, 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, again, you can see them choosing from among themselves people to, to be sent out, representatives. Second Corinthians, it says, and not only that, but he has, appoint, has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. 
And in Acts 14, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. In order to, to appoint leaders from among you, you, again, need to know who you are, uh, and those leaders need to know who they serve and who they govern, uh, and membership provides that, provides that boundary of, of who is part of this organization, who is subject to this leadership, who is to be served by this leadership. And it also comes with some responsibilities. Um, the members of the church have the responsibility to identify who God has called from among them to lead. They're, uh, the responsibility to confirm that calling with prayer and fasting, laying on of hands uh, of those people. And they have the responsibility to submit to that leadership. We'll get into more depth on what uh, membership looks like in a kind of just a practical sense as far as what the requirements are and what the, the duties are. Um, I would uh, just encourage you, it's not a whole lot of things that you're not already doing. You guys are already bearing one another's burdens. You're already here you're already participating in the means of grace. You're already serving one another. Um, there'll be some, uh, again, kind of formal organizational stuff that goes with membership, but it's not, it's not a burden. It's not going to be taking a ton of time. It's not going to put a bunch of restrictions on you. So I'd encourage you with that. Um, but it also is going to give you some ownership, um, which is good. It'll, it'll give you... Um, a say in, in direction of things um, as, as things come to the members for vote. Um, and again, those are things we'll get into in a lot more detail over time. The church, in order to fulfill its purposes, also it requires commitment. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ does cherish the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. According to Paul, marriage is a type of the church. Um, we could spend a ton of time here. You could spend multiple sermons just on this uh, type as well. We all know what's involved in marriage. We all know the commitment that marriage is. We all know that marriage uh, includes a public vow, um, that it's a solemn occurrence, that it's, but it's also joyful, that it's enduring. And Paul says that marriage is a type of the church. It points to what the church is and what the church should be. Um, I'm going to throw out a word probably not many have heard. I didn't hear it till recently. The church is the antitype of marriage. So marriage is the type, church is the antitype. The type points to the antitype. And so as you look at types in scripture, the, you know, things that pointed to Christ, the types in the Old Testament point to Christ. Christ is the antitype. Um, and all that to say that the most important part of that is the antitype is always greater than the type. And so the church is um, the church is the antitype. It's the thing that marriage points to, and it's the thing that's going to last. We know from Scripture that, that uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no marriage. Um, and, but the church, as the body of Christ, endures for all eternity. That's not ending. And so if we want to, if we would look at marriage and the commitment that's involved in it, if we look at the public vow, at the solemn occurrence, then, then the nature of the, all that, we should give greater weight to being part of the church. Whatever weight we give to marriage, a greater weight should be given to the church. Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, we're not, we are to meet together. We're not to neglect that. We're to commit to being together on a regular basis. I read this earlier, but it's worth repeating. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. 
they devoted themselves to church. They devoted themselves to the ordinary means of grace. Romans 12 um, describes uh, how the church is, is made up of of many people. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We each have uh, parts to play. We each have gifts to give to one another. Um, you can't do those things if you're in and out. Uh, it requires commitment. It requires you to be, to be there. Proverbs, it says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. We're to commit to the church. The church um, is so important. And if your background is, is like mine, it, it was something we went to. I mean, I grew up going to church every Sunday. We were there anytime there was an event. Uh, it was definitely an important part of my life. Uh, and, and I'm super thankful for that. But I can still look back and see just even though we did it, it wasn't taught with that weight. We were there every time, it, you know, there was something to be there at, but there wasn't a teaching on the weight of, of the church, on, on the importance of the church. And I would encourage you, you are members of the body of Christ. You are members of the universal church. You should be members of a local church. And you should be there, and you should be committed to one another. And doing all those things we have talked about, making disciples, baptizing, teaching, edifying one another, building one another up, bearing one another's burdens, worshiping together. Uh, on Twitter this week, uh, some of you follow, Jeff Weisner posted this, church membership not only localizes love but also submission. The Bible commands the believer to obey their leaders. Not submitting to any leaders is disobedience. Submitting to all leaders everywhere is impossible. Thus, the believer must submit to particular leaders. So, church membership is necessary. And similar to, uh, to that, we need to know what the church teaches. And so we need to know uh, the doctrine of the church, and this is best done through a confession of faith. This is what our um, new bylaws and constitution says about the confession of faith. The Holy Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God and is the supreme authority in all matters of belief and practice and is therefore the basis of any confession of faith. As such, we believe it is both prudent and useful to adhere to certain biblical statements and confessions in order that the doctrinal beliefs of this church may be clearly known. So we would adopt as a reliable summary of scriptural teaching the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We consider this ancient document to be an excellent expression of that which we believe is clearly taught in the Word of God and embraced by us as faithful statements of our beliefs. We find it to be a confirmation of faith, a means of edification, and an aid in controversy and a basis for church unity. And I think we're going to get into a lot more and what that means and how to use the confession later. But there are some examples in Scripture of uh, creedal statements. Um, a confession is a, a large creed. Um, from 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And then in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the word, world, and taken up in glory. In Hebrews, we're told to hold fast to our confession. In order to do that, we need to know what that confession is. We need to know what we believe. The confession summarizes those beliefs. Um, doesn't mean that it's greater than Scripture. Scripture is the final and uh, rule of, uh, of all authority. And so it's subservient to Scripture, but it is a summary of what we believe Scripture teaches. Um, the difference between creeds and confessions, um, we, we recited the Apostles' Creed earlier. The creed sets boundaries for the universal church. Uh, so there's kind of four uh, ecumenical creeds that the vast majority of, of churches uh, affirm. Those creeds define what it means to be an Orthodox Christian. Um, and so they set a boundary around the universal church to help uh, set, like, okay, what does it mean to be a part of the body of Christ? What, what are the, the foundational truths I have to believe in order to be considered uh, a Christian? The confession sets boundaries around the local church, the visible church. And, and so confession works hand-in-hand hand with membership. They're both means for identifying who's in the church. Membership by who's committed and the confession by making sure that we're in agreement uh, on doctrine that are needed in order to, to serve and live together. In light of that, what should we do? What should the church do with confession and membership? First, those three, the, the things we talked about as far as the purpose of the church is to do those things. Be a disciple. Before you can make disciples, you need to be a disciple. Participate in the church. Participate in the ordinary means of grace. As we are called to baptize, we should be baptized. So if you believe in the Lord, you should have been baptized. By implication, we should be part of the church. We should be keeping its ordinances, including the Lord's Supper, and participating in the prescribed means of grace, participating in the public performance uh, of worship. We should learn what Jesus commanded of us. Um, and since... Uh, the scriptures are what tell us what Jesus commanded of us. We should know the scriptures. We should be learning as a community of disciples what we are uh, commanded to do. We should be doing that together, encouraging one another, building one another up in that. Um, I would go to say we should embrace the confession. Recognize that the confession is deep. It's full. There's so much in there. Uh, and it can act as a map for you as you study the scriptures to orient you to how doctrines connect, to how um, things relate, and so that you can see the relationships between pieces. And it helps you to keep uh, kind of that mental model of, of all that's going on in scripture. Scripture, the Bible is a big book. There's a lot in there. It's a, it's a, a study of a lifetime. Uh, and, and more so, because you're not going to exhaust all that's in Scripture in this lifetime studying it. Um, one of the things that we wanted to note at this point is, um, even though the church is, going to, is planning to adopt the 1689 Confession, uh, that's not something that we're going to require of members. And again, for the purpose, uh, for reasons I said, it's a, it's a big document. Um, we've been working through it for a long time. We know that it takes time to get to the point where you can affirm all that is in it. Um, and so uh, we'll detail what, you know, what the kind of the steps for membership are uh, later, but we're not going to require full affirmation of the confession to be a member. Uh, we're going to come alongside you and help walk you through uh, studying those things and learning those doctrines. And we've been doing that for a while now anyway, uh, we'll continue to do that. And then finally, uh, covenant together. Commit to one another. Um, as disciples, you don't, we don't get to go where we please. We go where the master goes. Um, 
You can't participate in the church if you aren't in the church, if you're not with the church. You can't study the scriptures together if you're not gathering together. Uh, so I encourage you to commit to the church. Um, one of the quotes from uh, the thing, there's a, a church covenant. Um, I don't have time to go into all of that today. We'll go into to more of that later on. But it's introduced with this paragraph. Having, as we trust, been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him, and having been baptized as believers in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious help, solemnly and joyfully confirm our covenant with one another as one body in Christ. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that's covered in that. Um, it's all stuff that we're already doing. It's all stuff you're already doing, uh, living under the authority of scriptures and um, committing yourself to the mission of the church and, and giving and serving one another and building one another up. And uh, we'll work through that in greater detail uh, as we continue this process. But I want to end with... Um, just a couple more statements, Elijah, you can come up. Uh, we're going to go back and read again that statement on, uh, on membership that, that we read earlier. A genuine Christian's commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is inseparable from his commitment to his truth and his people. This commitment ordinarily requires a formal, open, voluntary, solemn, and enduring commitment to membership in a local church. Again, we're all committed to Christ. We should be committed to his truth, and summarized in the confession, committed to his people, both the invisible church and the visible church, and especially our local church. So be committed to Christ, to his truth, to his people. And uh, now as we close, we're going to we're going to share in the Lord's Supper, which is one of the best ways that we can together demonstrate our commitment to Christ and to each other is to share a meal approaching the Lord's table in, in remembrance of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done, especially in bringing us into your family, in bringing us into the church. Thank you for bringing us all to this church. We are privileged to live with one another, to, to walk through life together. Lord, give us a love for one another. Give us a love for you, for your truth. Build us up as your body. Knit us together as, uh, as a group of believers that we can both be disciples and make disciples, that we can... Uh, learn of you and teach each other and that by that your kingdom would be furthered and your name be glorified amen